again, if you uh, slipped in during that worship, we are really glad to have you here. And um, we're in this series called Pursued in that we are God's divine obsession. We began looking at this little Old Testament book that may be difficult to find. And so I'm going to ask you to turn there to the book of Hosea. If you have your smartphone, you can follow along on version. You've got all the notes and verses there. But if you want to find that, if uh, listen, there is no shame in your game. If you have no idea where that book is, just go, what do they call it? This amazing thing called the Table of Contents. It gives you the page numbers. I used it all the time in college. Do it. Uh, it will help you. It's after the book of Daniel. And we talked about the reality that in this book, there's uh, many people don't teach on some of the, the prophets, some of the, uh, the, these, these minor prophets is what they're called if you're a Bible student. And, and, and it's because they're challenging in some ways. Because in some ways, you'll read through this text and you'll go, man, God's mean. And you have to remember that in the, the literature and the writing of the day, in this particular context, these are not only prophetic books of things to come, but also poetry in a lot of ways. That it's poetic in their language, trying to convey imagery and, and to pull heartstrings and not just convey logic and, and things. And so you have to read it in the context of that. And we talked about this issue that we live in a culture that is about love. And we talked about love story movies last week. Remember, we, we gave some examples of one and that we are fascinated by that. And this really, this particular book, the book of Hosea, is a love story. It's tragic in nature, and yet it's incredibly beautiful on the other side. And so I want us to kind of pick up where we left off last week. And if, um, you know, sometimes if you miss a week, it's not a big deal. You kind of catch up. But if, if you really want to understand where we are, I encourage you to kind of go online and listen to last week because some messages have a way of building. And that, I think, is what this series is really about. And, um, and again, just happy Father's Day to those of you who are dads. And I do want to give a special shout out to, uh, to our other pastor. I'm, I'm Jack and, and Brian uh, did a ton of work with a lot of people setting things up for us afterwards. I've been over welcoming a lot of our families. And so when you see him, give him a happy Father's Day for that. And uh, so thank you to him and he's working with that. So um, this book of Hosea is an unorthodox illustration of this incredible divine love of God, similar to what we just sang about. And this may be outside of the cross of Jesus and the gospel that Jesus put on display through his death and his burial and his resurrection, may be one of the most beautiful images in all of the scriptures of God's love and his compassion and his forgiveness. And you gotta keep that in mind as we kind of go through this. And so in the book of Hosea, I'll just give, you, give a quick recap. We're looking into an illustration, a, a given illustration. God comes to Hosea, who's the prophet. Remember, we talked about prophets being the mouthpiece of God. And it, it's not in a weird way. This was totally legit. And he says to Hosea, uh, Hosea, I'm gonna ask you to do something that I've never asked anyone else to do before or since. And he says to him in the very first a uh, couple of verses, it says, I want you to go marry a prostitute, which at our point, we would go like, what? Okay, Bible got weird. Um, and we'd be like, this doesn't seem to jive with what we know about God and what we know about his heart for us and his passion for righteousness and, and for us to live kind of this holy life. And, and you have to understand the whole book of Hosea, the whole first few chapters are creating this illustration live and in person of this marriage relationship. Remember we talked about poetry, that this is a poetic look lived out. 
I want to give an illustration about marriage, God says, because there's something that goes on here. Then the last part of the whole book from chapter four through the end uh, is really about God takes this marriage illustration, he looks at the first part, then he talks about God kind of being God the Father and Israel the Son, he talks about kind of this parenting relationship, and he's living out these illustrations, and that kind of lives out this book uh, of Hosea. We talked about this as being a, an incredible challenging book in a way that it maybe ushers us and, and calls us to something that's really different. It's using this imagery. And we talked about relationship. is always about what? Commitment, not contract. That was the big contrast we looked at last week, that relationships are always based on a commitment, not a contract. You have a cell phone contract. But if you have a boyfriend, girlfriend, your husband, wife, you have a commitment one to another, and those are two radically different things. Now, it gets weird in our society because we see a lot of people treat them as similar, don't we? And the truth is, that's really unhealthy. And it's not that. It's not me 50% and you 50%. This is what I say to every married couple when we're, I was doing a wedding last night. It's not meet you halfway. It's I'm 100% in for you, and you're 100% in for me. And it's this commitment I'm making. My whole filter of life is changing. I'm no longer viewing myself from a single mindset. I'm now viewing myself as married. And so this marriage illustration is a really, really big deal. In fact, this marriage relationship, this idea of commitment is about allegiance one to another. It's about having exclusive commitment one to another. And here's what we know about to be true. Relationships get really weird and sideways when we lose that exclusive foundation, don't we? we? We see it all the time. I don't need to give you illustrations. You've seen it. And when it loses and it starts to drift away from this exclusive foundation, things get sideways really fast. In fact, the Bible kind of talks about this idea, this, this call to us as followers of Jesus, a call to us, and maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're just here checking out church, and I think it's awesome that you're here. And I'm so proud of you for owning your spiritual journey. My hope for you is that somewhere along the way, there would be something about this scripture and something about this guy, Jesus, that would just kind of grab your heart and begin to take you on a journey to see what this is really about because Jesus talked about living the best possible kind of life. And the scriptures kind of back that up and begin to point to this idea that we are to live in relationship and in commitment, which is about exclusivity. It's this notion where I'm, I'm solely for you and solely you're for me. And you have to remember that in the context of what the Israelites were facing, the people of God in that day, they were living in a land of multiple deities, of multiple gods. I mean, a God for just about everything under the sun. And they would have this, this pull to want to pursue after other things, maybe pursue after what the Bible would call idols or idolatry, where they begin to give their allegiance or their energy to something else, either in something or someone, that they would begin to, to kind of place their allegiance and say, God, okay, you're here and you're important, but this other thing is almost just as important or even more important than you. And what the Bible would say is, hey, you're beginning to drift toward this, what the scripture would call idolatry meaning beginning to put something that was made, something that you pursue as above 
who God created you to be and above himself and the design that he said there's some of these needs and some of these desires that you have that are legit and that are good, but when you look for them outside of me, God would say you're, you're going to be empty. And, and how many times have you heard interviews with people who made it in our culture, right? They have the fame, they have the money, they have the status, and yet part of the longing in their heart is what they're, they're hollow. They're empty. And see, emptiness is a consequence of idolatry. Emptiness is this thing that, it's this void that you pursue after something or someone to fill the gap and to provide those needs that only God created that he could fill and that he could provide. And we try to place something else in there. And, and it's this notion that when the worshiper, when empty idols are worshipped, the worshiper becomes just as vacant because they're empty and they cannot satisfy. And so you have this relationship between Hosea, remember Hosea is the prophet, and Gomer, which is just a bummer name, let's be honest. And that's her name. And so, so Hosea goes and marries Gomer, right? And, and, and I didn't get to unpack this in chapter one, but Gomer actually has children there in this household that probably aren't Hosea's children because she's kind of still stuck in this lifestyle. And, and, and along the way, Hosea actually falls in love with Gomer. And then this tragedy strikes. Is somewhere along the way, Gomer just decides, you know what, uh, I'm gonna go back to my former way of life. And she leaves, and she's back a lady of the night, and she's left, and Hosea's left in the dust. And remember, it's not just about Gomer and Hosea and their story. What their story is an illustration, right? this commitment, this illustration of God and his people. And God has this commitment where he pursues, and yet there's this notion where Israel just says, I'm going to take off. In fact, I want you to look at what I think is maybe one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Because here you have God who has done everything for his people. If you just think back to the backdrop, he's the one that's seen them struggling, rescues them out of Egypt and out of slavery, brings them on this journey, gives them a land, is doing everything for them. And in Hosea chapter 2, you'll begin to see this. This is where to, to worship what would happen is people would take the goods that maybe the land would do uh, and provide, and they would sacrifice that. And what Israel was caught up doing is sacrificing this to a false god named Baal. And, and so God would be watching this. Now, he's the one that's provided all this, but Baal is the storm god that supposedly is about fertility and about crops. And so you have the people of God who would then take their crops and sacrifice it to this false god, all the while knowing that God's the one that actually provided that in the first place. And so it's this weird picture. And we get this poetry here in chapter 2, verse 14. Or verse 13, here's what it says. <coughs> I will punish her, God's speaking, I will punish her, Israel, for all the time she deserted me. Listen to the, just listen to the language of this. When she burned incense to her images of Baal and put on her earrings and jewels and went out looking for her lovers, said the Lord. It'd be like if, if you're married, your spouse gives you a piece of jewelry or a watch or just something that's special to you or if your boyfriend, girlfriend, they, they share this with you and it's this incredible moment where you get this and then all of a sudden you take that, go down to the local bar and use that to bribe someone for something in a one night stand. Like you would think that would just be weird to do that, right? Like you just got this gift 
that's super meaningful, and yet you go out and do this just incredible thing that would be hurtful. And here we have God hurting. Remember, we left off with God being this jealous lover portrayed in a way. And maybe that kind of messes with your image of God and who he is and what he's really like. And yes, God's sovereignty is over that, but you have to understand God's heart here. And it isn't just robotic. God has a heart, and he has these emotions. And that's, on, that's portrayed all throughout Scripture. And yet, even in that moment of betrayal, that's how God's feeling. She's put on her earrings and gone out to find other lovers, and she's forgotten all about me. Can you imagine how that would feel? Some of you don't have to stretch for that. You know. And can you just look at the very next verse? This is amazing to me. A God who pursues us in spite of ourselves. Verse 14. But God says, but then I will win her back once again. I will lead her out into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will woo her back. See, God's passionate pursuit and his divine obsession of you doesn't stop with your behavior, good or bad. It isn't dependent on what you bring to the table. It isn't hinge on what you do. Why? Because this isn't a contract. This is a commitment, and it's a commitment God's made to you. It's a commitment he's made to his people, and so you have this illustration. How is it possible to forget the very one that that you love and that has loved you? Well, it's really easy to begin to drift. See, no one wakes up and says, God, I hate you, and I'm done. No one gets to that point right away. That happens over days and days and months and months and years and years of distance. Why? Because this is a commitment and it's a relationship, and you have to invest in that relationship. And so there's moments maybe where we're going through brokenness, or we go through difficulty, we go through challenge, and we begin to build a wall, right? We begin to take a step back, and we we long to be connected to God, but yet we almost begin to, we either get busy or we just kind of forget, and we end up putting this distance between us and God. God didn't move, we moved. And we begin building this wall higher and higher, and we're the ones that build it, and this drift, this drift is part of the human condition. See, every single one of us needs to resist this drift toward idolatry, this drift toward other things taking the importance of who God is and what he's designed for us to desire in him and to have our needs met in him. Now, you might say, okay, Jack, what does that look like? I don't know. I know partly what it looks like, but here's here's the truth. That looks different for each one of us. This idea of drifting away from intimacy and drifting away from this commitment and drifting away in a relationship, it happens differently, doesn't it? Not one marriage is exactly like the other. Not one relationship is exactly like the other. But we all know the drift when we sense it and when we see it. And you're the better judge of that in your own context. And so the question is, are you drifting? With your relationship, you and God, how are you doing? And we asked that last week because it's about this commitment and we don't wanna have this drift in relationship and and we realize, okay, this drift is actually playing out and happening in the life of poor Hosea. Can you imagine? God, do you want me to do what? Okay, well, I'll go do that. 
and he does it out of obedience, and then somewhere along the line, he actually falls in love, and then this bridge is burned. And Gomer takes off, and he has no idea even where she's at. And yet his heart is breaking. We would look at that, and we would say, that's a challenge. But here's what we, we talked about last week, remember? The foundation of this whole book is God pursues us for a relationship, and that matters. Why? Because it's about commitment, not a contract. God pursues us for a relationship. And God comes to Hosea and he says, I want you to do something. Verse chapter, chapter three, verse one, here's what he says. <clears throat> so you have all this poetry going on. Then he comes to Hosea, who's in this broken spot. The Lord said to me, go and get your wife again. Now, that's probably not the advice I would give Hosea. I mean, if you think about it, let's just be honest. Hosea has got this person who, it might be a wonderful person, but who is trapped in dysfunction junction, right? This is super dysfunctional, super unhealthy. And most of us in the room would probably look at Hosea and say, Hosea, you have every right to get out. You have every right to run, to flee, to kind of put up some safety boundaries because you don't have to be walked over in life. And it's, you have every right to do that. But remember, this isn't about Hosea and Gomer alone. This is about an illustration, right? Of God's illustration of his love, his pursuit of you. And so he shows up to Hosea and he says, I want you to do something. I want you to do what I do. I want you to go and love your wife again. Even though she's off committing this act and, and breaking your heart over and over, I want you to do this because it illustrates my love for who? my people. You are to go and get her. And Hosea, he begins to see this, this, this truth that we begin to see in, in the book of Hosea. It's this. God pursues us with grace that is greater than. God pursues us with a grace that is greater than. It is greater than your mess. It is greater than your mistake. It is greater than your brokenness, than any rebellion, than any doubt, any manipulation, any fear, any protest, any setback that you face. God pursues you with a grace, friend, that is greater than any bit of your mess. Because in this illustration that's being lived out in the book of Hosea, we're Gomer. We have a tendency of being unfaithful to God. But thankfully, God is radically committed to being faithfully to us. And he pursues us as his people. I love this quote from Martin Luther, a reformer. He says this, grace is given to heal the spiritually sick, not to decorate spiritual heroes. And friends, that's us. We're the ones that have wandered. We're the ones with the wandering heart. We're the ones that long to go to other things to try to fill us up. And this is an illustration where God is saying, no, I want you to go in love again. I want you to pursue. This isn't about karma. And listen, so much of the world's religions are based around this notion of karma. What you put out, you get back. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or the law of physics, this, every action has an equal reaction to it. And there is some truth to that. But the Bible comes along and says there's something greater than karma. It's called grace, and grace eats karma for breakfast. And grace is this pursuit that isn't about what you did at all. Grace kicks karma's butt every single day of the week. 
And grace says, I'm gonna pursue you because my grace is greater than anything that you do or anything that you give back. It's not based on a contract. It's based on this commitment, this covenant type of love. I want you to go and love. In Hebrew, literally, this phrase that God is saying to Hosea is talking about his loyal love. We mentioned that last week. God has this loyal love that's based around this covenant. It defies reason and logic. Friends, grace is good news. And isn't that what Jesus said? I've come to bring you good news. I've come to bring you something that you could not acquire on your own. It isn't based on what you give and then you're gonna get that back because if that were true, we're all toast, right? And so the Bible says, no, this is about grace. She, Gomer, is the serial cheater. She's stuck in this pattern. Maybe from shame, maybe from guilt, maybe some things from her past that have led and fed into the cycle. That may be very true. And we know that to be true, that that can be a huge influence where people are, which is why grace says you don't live by shame. You don't live by past titles or past name badges that have been strapped onto you. You have a new name. It's called grace. And you have it, and it covers over anything. Why? Because grace is greater than. That's what the Bible continues to talk about. And Hosea, as a single dad, is maybe looking at this illustration and saying, God, this hurts. Like, this, this isn't right. This isn't real. And God says, you know what? I want you to do this because this is an illustration of my love for my people. And my grace pursues people for a relationship. And my grace is greater than any mess or any mistake or any choice or any rebellion that they might have in their life. This is about a loyal love. You'll remember back to, to Abraham. Abraham is one of the early followers uh, of God, and, and, and he says God makes this covenant with him. And we don't understand that word covenant a whole lot. Maybe marriage might be the best example of that because remember we talked about this idea of commitment, and we, we struggle with that word commitment because I have a commitment to the gym and I obviously go all the time. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. Um, <clears throat> I'm okay. I have, anyway, so it's this notion, of, I understand commitments can be shallow and can be faulty at places, and yet this covenant, remember God makes this covenant relationship with Abraham, and he does so in the custom of the day. This seems weird and seems gross if you don't know about it, but back in the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East, they had this custom that where they would take an animal, they would split it in half, and they would lay it half open, and then these two people that have this commitment one to another, they would walk in between them. And now we look at that and go, dude, that's animal cruelty, that's weird, that's gross. It is all of those things. But in the ancient Near East, that was the custom of the day. And so Abraham and God are having this conversation, and God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, a commitment to you and to your future generations. And so in the custom of the day, here's what we're going to do. So Abraham takes an animal, cuts it open, lays it there, and God puts him to sleep. And God walks in between these split animals. Here's what they were saying that day. May God do to us what it was done to this animal if I break covenant, meaning if you had land next to me. And we said, hey, here's our property lines. You stay on your land, I'll stay on my land. We're gonna split this animal open, walk in between it. And if I go on your land or you come on mine, we violate this commitment we're making right now. May God do to us what happened to this antelope. I'm picking an antelope. I don't know if they had an antelope. And so we would, we would say that. And so God says to Abraham, I'm gonna make a covenant with you. 
And he does this, and then he puts Abraham to sleep and says, no, you're not going to walk through it. Just I am. In fact, I'm going to walk through this so that you know I'm committed to you no matter what you do. God pursues us with a grace that is greater than. And friends, that is not only good news, that is the best news on the planet. Because we know ourselves. How many of you know yourself? Yeah, this is a participation. How many of you know yourself? Yeah. And my hunch is, no matter how committed you are, how disciplined you are, at some point you wake up and realize the truth. I can't attain everything and do everything the way God desires and dreams me to do. Why? Because I'm not capable. And so God says, I'm going to pursue you, and I'm going to make this commitment to you, and I'm going to make it to his people. And remember, this is an illustration of God's love to his people. And so in verse 2, chapter 3, he goes on. I want you to go and love your wife again. So verse 2, so I bought her back. So here's Hosea, right? He probably wanders into a shady part of town. And back in that day when slavery was rampant, right? We don't have that issue today at all, do we? That's total sarcasm. In fact, we, anyone heard of the End It movement? We've got what's reported at 27 million people stuck in slavery today. Whether that's sex trafficking, whether that's just slavery uh, on just you know, plantations that we're all over the world or different things, stuck in factories doing things. We, we understand slavery. We may have abolished some of it, but the truth is it's still alive and active on our planet. And what would happen back then is a woman who would get stuck into this cycle again. She becomes known as property. She's no longer a person. And so somewhere along the way, she would probably stand on a platform like this, and she would be bid on. And the highest bidder would win her as property. And so imagine this scene as Hosea is walking through maybe this shady part of town, and here's Gomer up on this platform, people gawking, bidding, shouting out, maybe whatever they're doing in this moment, but she, she knows, she's lost probably all value of herself. And in this moment, she begins to hear a familiar voice, and it's the voice of her husband, Jose, who's lost her because she's been sold as property. And yet in this moment, Hosea shows up, and he says that he pays uh, for her, he buys her back. This, uh, this five bushels and a barley and a measure of wine, that's about what a slave would go for in that time period. And so Hosea buys her back, and he says, you're coming home with me, and it's home, not out for sale, not stuck in the cycle. You're coming home where you're known. And God says, see, Hosea, that's what I do for my people. Anyone getting a foreshadowing here of what Jesus does for us? Is this beginning to paint a picture of maybe what God sent Jesus on a mission to do, to buy us back? See, to redeem something in the New Testament has a lot of spiritual overtones to it. Redemption, that's in the New Testament, that's a, it's a highly spiritually significant word, right? But in the Old Testament, the word redemption is an economic term. It's not doesn't have spiritual overtones to it. It's an economic term. It's this term that says uh, it implies a person is stuck in slavery and they have no way of getting themselves out of it. That they have been captive 
and they're held captive. Well, that's Gomer's situation, isn't it? She can't work her way out of it. It implies that a price or a ransom has to be paid. Well, that's, that's her situation. And only after that ransom is paid can she acquire freedom. It implies that a human liaison must act to secure that freedom. Someone's got to step in and act in that. So take your Bibles and go over to Romans chapter 3. And I want you to see something. Because in Romans chapter 3, I want you to keep that in mind, this redemption as an economic term. Someone's stuck in captivity. Someone has to pay a ransom to secure a freedom. And only then is that person acting as a liaison or that is that person that's stuck free. And here's what happens in verse 22. We are made right in God's sight when we trust in Jesus Christ to take away our sins. And we all can be saved in the same way, no matter who we are or what we've done. For all have sinned and fall short of the glorious standard of God. We're all held captive in a way. Yet now God in his gracious kindness declares us not guilty. And he has done this through Christ Jesus who freed us by taking away our sins, by paying this ransom on your behalf and on my behalf. For God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to satisfy God's anger against us. We are made right with God when we believe that Jesus shed his blood in sacrificing his life for us. God uh, being entirely fair and just when he did not punish those who sinned in former times and he entirely fair and just in this present time when he declares sinners to be right in the sight because they believe in Jesus. So you begin to see this? This idea of redemption in the Old Testament, of being strictly an economic term, we get to see foreshadowings of that in the New Testament, where, where Jesus shows up and says, okay, you're stuck, and you're being held captive by the brokenness of humanity, by your own sin nature, by things that you can't fix on your own. And yet, Jesus shows up in this moment, and he makes this punishment. He takes it right. See, we have this grace that pursues us for a relationship. And we have this grace that says it's greater than any of your mess or your mistakes. It's greater than that. It begins to search for you and begins to find you. And we also have this grace that begins to put boundaries around us in healthy ways. See, what you begin to see in this story of Hosea is that Hosea takes Gomer home. And he says something really incredible here in verse 3. Can I just read it to you? Verse 3, he says this. So I bought her back, and then I said to her, you must live in my house for many days, and you must stop this activity that you're involved in, this prostitution. During this time, you will not have a relationship with anybody, not even with me. I'm going to set some boundaries around you. Why? Because you're stuck in this cycle, and it's not healthy, and it's not good for you. How many of you have a father? We all do. And whether you have a great relationship with your father, and maybe you do, and maybe Father's Day is an awesome day for you, and maybe you don't. Maybe you don't know your dad. Maybe you, you, what you know of your dad doesn't bring warm fuzzies, and Father's Day is a tough day. And here's what you need to know, is that God is our perfectly heavenly father. He's not a greater reflection of our earthly dads. He's the perfect reflection of what earthly dads should be. And God has a way in our own way of putting boundaries around us. I ask you, how many of you have a dad? How many of you have a dad that put boundaries around you at times? 
you are loved if you did. And you know the challenge with this is maybe you had a dad that didn't put boundaries around you and you would look back now as an adult and you would say that wasn't healthy, was it? You would be honest enough with yourself to go that, that wasn't the best, that didn't create the best scenarios for me. But when you have a father that actually puts healthy boundaries around you, I, I think of the example of homework. My kids come home, school's over, so this is awesome for the next couple months, right? But as a parent, when my kids come home and they have to do homework, and what's the typical universal expression and emotion and sigh from a kid when you tell them, hey, you gotta do your homework, just all with me, what, is it, what happens? <laughs> exactly, it's exactly what happens. And so this little dialogue begins to take place, right? And as a dad, I'm like, no, you gotta do homework. Why? Because you gotta learn. And they're like, well, we're never gonna use this again. I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. But you gotta learn because learning is what moves you forward in life. It's important, it's critical. And as your dad, I'm gonna make you do your homework. Oh, dad, that stinks, blah, blah, blah. Escalation, escalation, yell, throw things. I'm just kidding, we don't. Uh, But... It's all this drama, right, that goes on with homework. And as a dad, I want them to do homework. Why? Because I don't want them to suck in school, right? I want them to do their best because I want that to be a pattern of their life that they would learn and that they would do their best in the things they have in front of them. And I'm not mean for making, why? Because I'm looking past their comfort to their character. Listen, friends. God's discipline is love because it's perfect discipline and it looks past your comfort to your very character. And when God disciplines, where God begins to put healthy boundaries around you, he's doing so because he loves you. Now it's really easy in the, in the Christian world for us to kind of look at other people and say, hey, God must be disciplining you. Listen, that's not your right. You don't sit in the seat of judgment. So just stop it. The only person who can understand that if God's truly disciplining them is you. And you know that better than anybody. So don't let anyone else tell you this is what's happening. You and God work that out. God, is this a struggle because of something and maybe God's gonna say, yeah, I'm withholding something or I'm calling you on the carpet on something because I, I care more about your, your character than your comfort. God looks all the way past your comfort levels to your character. And he says, I want to do some refinement work here. And this is about maybe some boundaries and about calling you to something better and something greater. See, love knows no bounds. But it also brings boundaries. And there's truth there. Real love knows no bounds. It will go to the end. But it also knows enough to put boundaries around things, and that's what's happening in Hosea and Gomer and their relationship, and listen, remember that illustration? That relationship is a bigger illustration, and God is putting some boundaries around his people, and he's doing things in the book of Hosea that says God loves you more than your comfort level. He looks beyond that. He loves you all the way to your character, and he's doing some refinement work at times. Can I just read to you Hebrews chapter 12, and I'll draw this to a close. Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, as you endure divine discipline. Listen, discipline is not easy, right? When I take away TV from my kids, do you know who suffers the most? (laughs) Preach it, preach it, man, preach it. Who suffers the most? I do. 
Amy does. Why? Because it stinks. Because it's hard. Because all of a sudden it's, I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored. Now it's summer. There's no homework to do. I made up homework. Um, <laughs> it's challenging at times. Discipline's not easy. It, God's not on a pleasure trip when he disciplines you. It's not like, hee, 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 hee. No, I don't think God likes to do it. Why? Because it's tough when you love. And some people look at God and go, God, you're supposed to love me. Just let me get away with everything. Let me do everything. And God says, no, that's not love. You know that to be true. In fact, you show up in the store, in the supermarket, and a kid's going nuts, and you're looking around for the parent. What are you looking around for the parent to do? Get some kind of control, right? And that parent sometimes is hiding down another aisle, avoiding their child who's throwing the temper tantrum in the middle of the aisle and you can't move your cart around you. And what you want is somebody's got to have control. Someone's going to put down some boundaries here, right? That's what you're thinking in your mind. Why? Because that's the loving thing to do. And sometimes that's tough. And Gunn says, I love you more than your comfort. I love you all the way to your character. So in the book of Hebrews, it says this, as you endure divine discipline, remember God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who was never disciplined? A parent who doesn't discipline you in, uh, as he does all his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not really children after all. Since we respect our earthly fathers who discipline us, should we know all the more cheerfully submit to the discipline of our heavenly father and live forever? Earthly fathers discipline us in a few years doing the best they know how, but God's discipline is always right and for our good. And so in the book of Hosea, we begin to see this on display. God loves you and pursues you for a relationship, friend. And he pursues you with a grace that is far greater than any mess, or mistake, or setback, or act of rebellion you could ever do. But he loves you enough to maybe even begin to put some boundaries around you, to begin to hem you in a little bit, because his love is driven to help you become something that you are not. That's what we're going to look at next week, to become and move into something different. And so here's what I want to invite us to. We're going to, if you're new here, we usually teach for a little bit, and we have a couple worship songs we end with, and we have a, a time of communion that you're welcome to participate in here in just a moment. We've got a couple different stations up front that as we move into this next song that you are welcome to participate. You don't have to, uh, or any point in these next couple of songs that you can do that. But I, I want to give you some space just to, to think about this idea that God pursues you for a relationship. God pursues you with a grace that is greater than. And that God pursues you to build your character, not just supply your comfort. And sometimes he's hemming you in. And maybe there's a relationship thing here because remember we talked about this is a commitment, not a contract. And so I just want to give you space to think about your commitment, your relationship with God tonight. How are you doing in that? Where are you at in that? What is God maybe kind of speaking and nudging your heart with tonight? And so would you pray with me and we'll uh, continue on with our service. Father, I thank you for the book of Hosea and I thank you for the relationship that you, you put on display a greater illustration of your love and a greater illustration of your commitment to us and how you pursue us with a love that is so far beyond our understanding. Father, you pursue us with a love and a grace that is greater than any of our mistakes. 
And Father, you pursue us with a love that cares more about our character than our comfort levels. So Father, I know for my friends here, some of us are in a place where we just need to sense a whisper from you again of the tenderness of how you even said in chapter two that you're gonna woo back your people to go and and to live this loyal love that is pursuing and, and searching after us. And Father, for some of us, maybe we're in a place in a life, in a season of life where you're wanting to, to kind of shape our character a little bit and we're pushing back against that, not liking the tension that it brings and yet in that tension, you want to do a work that is so greater, so much greater than we could ever do if we just got everything handed to us, if we just got all of our comfort supplied. So as we worship you, as we remember communion, as we remember the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the grace that is our supply, that is our fuel for life. Would you meet us here in these moments? We want to hear from you.